Today's passage is from Mark 10, verses 32 through 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Theomus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up to, and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This has been the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. How many of you like the movie Gladiator? Is that a favorite of anybody? It's in my top five. Top five, I love it. The opening, one of the opening scenes, part of the opening scene in Gladiator was um, Commodus, the son of Marcus Aurelius, who was the Caesar. And he approaches the, a cement or, I guess, marble bust of his father, touches the face of it, and his dad, the Caesar, walks in behind him and tells him that he's not going to be Caesar in his place. And um, Joaquin Phoenix, you can see his face. He's immediately upset about it. And his lip begins to tremble, and he says, you wrote to me once, listing the four chief virtues, wisdom, 
justice, fortitude, and temperance. As I read the list, I realized I had none of them, but I have other virtues, Father. Ambition. This can be a virtue when it drives you to succeed. Do you remember that scene? He said, I have ambition. He, be he begins to cry, and his father cries. Eventually, his father hugs him and says, your failures as a son are my failures as a father. A little dramatic on my part there, but that's how he said it. And uh, Commodus hugs his father's face, suffocating him, crying, and says, I would have butchered the whole world if you would have only loved me. And with that squeeze, he kills his own father. Commodus was ambitious. When he wasn't going to receive that position that he felt he deserved, he killed his own father. And behind that need to be Caesar was his need to be accepted and approved by his dad. He had some dad issues. So I want to ask you a question. Are you an ambitious person? Really, I want to ask you that question. One to ten. If you have a pencil, write down your number. If you don't, put it in your mind. Number one is you have no ambition. You are an ambitionless person. Number ten, you are high ambition. People have told you you're ambitious, that you're driven, that you're um, highly motivated. One to ten. In the middle, well, you're in the middle. So wh what's your number? of ambition. Are you ambitious? Today's sermon is good news for the ambitious. James and John had come to Jesus and in verse 35 they said, teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's kind of, I guess, the way they speak back then to say, I want you to do me a solid. And so, Jesus says, what do you want? And they say, we want to be on your left hand and on your right hand. And they showed their hand of ambition. If I could give a um, subtitle, which I can't because it's mine, sermon, to the sermon I would call it, the cross of Christ has the power to straighten out your twisted ambition. Okay, we'll go back to that phrase. That the cross of Christ has the power to straighten out your twisted ambition. Before, though, we know how the cross of Christ straightens out our twisted ambition as humans, we have to think about, we have to identify ambition in ourselves. So what is ambition? A definition for ambition is a strong desire to do or to achieve something. Typically, it requires determination and hard work. This is the definition from the dictionary. Ambition, you could say, is a holy thing. It's a thing that was given to us by God. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a number of things to do. He said, multiply and fill the earth. Well, that doesn't happen without some ambition to accomplish that. 
And then he told them, have dominion over all of my creation. That's a quite ambitious job that he gave them. So you could say that ambition, there is a, such a thing as holy ambition. When I asked you if you're ambitious, I asked you only after I told you the story of Commodus. Because like James and John in this passage, we tend to think of ambition in one of two ways. That some, sometimes we think it's like Commodus, it's a very positive thing. It's a quality. It's a trait that I have. But often when we see ambition in others, we see it as quite a negative thing, causing them to want power and position and riches over other people. So, but ambition was originally created by God, and he made us necessarily to be ambitious, a holy ambition. But we live in a world of twisted ambition. We see that at the beginning of the Old Testament, how after the flood of Noah, a tower was built named Babel where they tried to get to God, and that's the original sin, is that God would be, or that man would try to raise himself up to be in the place of God. Interestingly, the greatest picture we have of, in the Old Testament of our God in human form is, the king, is King David and how he was a shepherd who God raised up himself. So Jesus then, he's going to give some answers, but I want to focus our attention here on verse 43 and 44 for the rest of the sermon, and we're going to look at the passage as it relates to verse 43 and 44. He says here, but it sh Jesus said to them, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So look what he says here in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great. That phrase, would be great, is wants to be great. So he didn't necessarily rebuke James and John for their desire to sit on his left hand and right hand or to be great in the kingdom of heaven, but he said, if you desire to be great, if you have great ambition, and then he tells them what to do with that ambition. So... I identify in these disciples two groups of people that had ambition. One of them was James and John, but the 10 were another group. Because look at 40, verse 41, it says, and when the 10 heard it, then they began to be indignant at James and John. So what caused ambition and how do we see this twisted sort of ambition? James and John wanted Jesus to do something for them so that they could get a position above the other disciples. You can understand why the other disciples didn't appreciate that very much. So what caused this in James and John? It's no accident that Jesus puts this conversation directly after Jesus foretelling his death, that he's going to die and he's going to suffer for them, and then they come up and say, hey, yeah, yeah, about that, but we want to be on your left hand and right hand. So what caused that in them? First of all, I think James and John have a human nature. The Bible says here that they were the sons of Zebedee. So some of us are born with a tendency to be highly ambitious. Three of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness were 
the desire to have, the desire to be, and the desire to do. The desire to be is that ambition. Where, the, where Satan took him up to see the nations of the world and he said, if you will only bow down to me, I will give you the nations. So he is tempting Jesus with ambition. Some of us find a greater temptation with um, a desire to do or others a desire to have or possessions. But I'm going to submit to you that all of us born with human fathers, like they were, the sons of Zebedee, are born with a, some level of twisted ambition in us. Um, another thing, I think, besides just that they were born sons of Adam and Eve, was that they grew up as fishermen and sons of fishermen on the coast of Galilee. And now they're traveling around with Jesus, and they're going village to village, and they're healing people, and Jesus's people are trying to make him king, and they're, for the first time, experiencing power. And they, they finally felt that they could maybe get on top of a world that's always held them down. I don't know if, what it was like for you growing up, if you grew up on the top of the pile or the bottom, but it seems like either one tends to have its effect on our desire to achieve and to gain respect in this world. Another thing is that they misunderstood the attention of Jesus. So Jesus had called them and selected them as one of the 12, and I think it's very likely that they kind of thought, well, we're kind of a big deal. Jesus must think we're kind of special. He must see something special in us, and beyond the fact that he called them to be one of the 12, he chose James and John, along with Peter, to be the three inner circle of the 12. So they misunderstood Jesus' special honor that he was giving them as somehow being some position that they should have for themselves. Um, I don't know if this happens to you, but I think the whole New Testament warns us about the Old Testament error of thinking that God's goodness and kindness to you and how he's blessed you means that somehow you're more worthy than anybody else. The book of Hebrews is full of that warning, not to think of yourselves as more worthy because he is good. The fact that he is good is why he blesses you, not because you deserve. But they had thought, evidently, this is our opportunity, and he has finally seen how wonderful we are and how good organizers we are, and he's going to make us the, at the left and the right. A word about that is prosperity gospel in our, in our generation is this error that says that because God is good, that he wants you to live for yourself. He has died so that you can be happy and you can be healthy and you can be rich. And he has become poor so that you never have to be poor. Well, that's, we're gonna find out that's not what the gospel is. Another reason, maybe the fourth reason, is they were playing a zero-sum game. They were called as one of the 12 disciples and they thought there's only so much power to go around, there's only so much blessing to go around, so we've got to grab what's ours now. And we've got to beat the other 10 to it. So they had this zero-sum kind of understanding of the power and blessing of Christ that, it, that they have to get on the left hand and right hand because after the left and right, what do you got left? You don't have a front hand and a back hand. So they were thinking this is a zero-sum game and there's, not, there's only so much to go around. 
Um, we see this in our children, I think. We, in Morocco, we eat for, for years with the Moroccans would eat out of one plate. And um, my son had a huge appetite all the time growing up, and not only him, his sisters, they would see this food, and it's on one plate. So what is it? It's a race now to the bottom of this bowl because there is only this much, and we've got to get, and, you know, they have meat in the middle, and then they have couscous on the outside. You're supposed to eat the couscous first, and then the very, the, 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 usually the head of the household will take the meat and tear it apart and give it to each person. But you have to train your children because what do they want to do? They want to dive directly into the meat and get the leg or get the biggest piece for themselves because this is all there is. And this is what the disciples must have thought, that the blessings of Jesus are like one bowl of couscous that we're sharing, and we need to get our part quick before the other guys do. I think that's our mentality. Um, how do you rejoice when God blesses someone else? Do you think if God were to bless another person, um, does, does that mean that he's not got enough to be good to you? Or if he grows another church, or if he gives any of his good gifts to those around you, the, the, this is the very, the basis of envy is a heart of twisted ambition that I want for myself, but God is blessing somebody else and I need to get my portion. So, can we truly desire and work for and delight in the success and growth of others? Not if we are operating with twisted ambition or corrupted ambition. But beyond those two who took that advantage and took that action, which they seem like the commodus of the story, the two that were so ambitious, but look at the ten who were indignant. I was reading this story today with some of the guys and like, what's this word, indignant? Well, they were ticked. They were angry. They could have, if they'd have got a hold of those two guys and Jesus wasn't watching, they would have gang-stomped him into the corner, both of them into the corner, ten on two. They were angry at what they had done. This was, what was this? This was a heart of twisted ambition in them. The only difference between the two and the other ten was that the two beat the ten to the question. They didn't think, well, I feel so sorry for those guys. They don't really, they're not really understanding the riches of God and Christ toward us right now. That's not what they were thinking. They were thinking they just beat us to it. So maybe you thought at the beginning, well, I'm not ambitious because I'm not on top. Well, there's the heart of envy and despising a brother or sister who has something you don't shows that corrupt and twisted ambition. So how do you know that you desire to be great or that you have a an ambition? Well, do you position yourself for people to think well of you? Do you get absolutely indignant at those who do that? How, do you, how much are your thoughts about yourself? How you are seen, how you are regarded, how you are listened to or obeyed or thanked or honored or praised, or appreciated, or remembered? How much are your emotions affected when those things don't happen? Can you laugh at yourself? A person who doesn't laugh at themselves very well is a person that's full of twisted ambition. 
Can you be seen without makeup? It's for the women. Uh, can your, I hope, can your house be seen when it's messy? Um, do you get easily embarrassed or uh, easily unhappy with what God has given you in life? These are emotions of the twisted, ambitious person inside of us. See, there are two different spectrums of these emotions There's that, that ambitious people have. One is great self-confidence, like James and John, and another is great self-loathing on the other side. Both of them represent a person who's ambitious to get position for self. Um, see, ambition is the desire that I be on top and that I get for me what I deserve. I'll give you an example of how this worked in my life. Um, when we were in Germany, there was one particular pastor in this group of pastors that we worked with who just really got under my skin. He was tall, he was good looking, he had all of his hair. You can see the contrast, right? And he just got under my skin. I felt like he just wanted to be the guy that got, you know, the praise everywhere he went. And I disliked him. Honestly, I disliked the person. And I realized as I was reading this passage this week, you know why I disliked him? Because I'm just as ambitious as he was to get the praise and to get the honor and to get the glory. Now, I did it in my own way, but I had the same heart of twisted ambition in my own life. So your twisted ambition is the source of so much pain and unhappiness and relational conflict in your life and mine. So here is the good news for the ambitious, that Christ came to redeem our ambition. Now, um, I asked you what your number of ambition was. I wonder now if any of you would change that number and say, actually, I'm more ambitious than I realized because of you, you recognize your own feelings and thoughts. Um, and is your, is your ambition twisted? God wants to redeem and redirect ambition. That's the next two things we're gonna talk about. So, Alex, you can help me out here. So we've identified ambition in our hearts and we also want to, number two, is to understand how Christ redeems our ambition. Look at the answer that Jesus said to them here when they asked to sit at his right hand and his left hand. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So what is he speaking about? A cup that he drinks and a baptism that he's baptized with. Well, we could read a few more chapters on Mark 14 verse 36 where Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asks his father if it, if it would be okay, let this cup of suffering pass. Yet not your will, my will, but yours be done. So the cup that he's speaking of is the cup of suffering, the cup of the wrath of God. The Old Testament talks about this when he talks about pouring out his wrath, God's wrath on sinners. He calls that a cup, that they will drink the cup of his wrath. 
So when he says, are you able to drink my cup? He's saying, are you able to take the suffering that I'm about to take? He had just prophesied about his suffering. And then the baptism, as we find out, is a picture of death. So when we're baptized, the reason we baptize by immersion underwater and bringing above water is because that's a picture of the death and burial of Christ. And he says, are you able to suffer and die? And he doesn't just say suffer and die. But he said, are you able to take my cup and be baptized with my baptism? Well, the answer for that question is the obvious no. But the disciples in verse 39 said, we are able. Jesus confirms, he says, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been given. So how then does Jesus redeem the uh, ambition, the twisted ambition in these disciples' lives and in my own? Well, first of all, it's to realize that God is ambitious. Do you know that God came on a rescue mission to defeat sin, death, and hell for all who would come? Being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, going to hell, there for three days, overcoming Satan and his resurrection, and forever securing a place for his children who would believe on him. Do any of you have a life plan that's that ambitious? That is an ambitious God, but it's a holy ambition. So Jesus is the lamb seated on the throne, though. So how did the ambition of God receive, or did, how did he achieve this holy ambition? Through the cup of suffering and the baptism of death for us. So what does this mean? That means that the Father highly exalted Christ after going through his suffering and death of service for us. So I want to share with you this. If we go back to verse 33 and look at the prophecy about Jesus' death, this is the third time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is going to tell his disciples about his death and resurrection. And each time he adds a little bit to it. And this particular one, he adds that we're going to Jerusalem, so where it's going to happen. And he adds a few other things to it. If you look at me in verse, with me in verse 33, he says, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. That's a new prophecy. The first two prophecies of his death did not include the idea of him being condemned to death. This is a judicial phrase. So, Alex, if you'll help me to go to one, how then does the work of Christ accomplish our restoration? How does it restore us into the image of God, including our ambition? How does it take this twisted, selfish ambition and restore it? The first way is that he was condemned in our place. And we're going to see, I'm going to run through this kind of fast because of time, but you can see four buildings are represented in any city in the world to understand the progress of the restorative work of Christ for us on the cross and what it accomplished for us. And the first was in the Hall of Justice. 
he was condemned. So he was judged and condemned to die who did no, who condemned no, who did no sin. So he was found guilty for us. He became sin for us, and that was the first part of his redeeming us or restoring us. And then the second one, he says, is in this prophecy, he says, condemn to death and deliver him over the Gentiles. The second part of this prophecy that was new in the three prophecies is he says, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Four different verbs to describe the suffering that he would go through. And this is in the temple. This is a picture of a Jewish temple where there is an offering being made. And so he was condemned to die in the hall of justice, dragged to a temple. Well, in, it was actually a hill called Golgotha, but the temple represents that where he was beaten. Flogged means that he was, his skin was stripped from him with, with whips, and he bled, and there his blood was spilled, just like at a temple with the, the, um, the animals that were sacrificed. He continues and says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And that's the third thing. This is in the marketplace, is that his blood, with his blood, he ransomed us. So he was condemned in a place of justice, shed his blood in a place of sacrifice, took that blood to the marketplace where he bought us with his blood. And then finally, having bought us and ransomed us with his blood, the fourth thing is he takes us home. Because at the end of this uh, prophecy, he says, after three days he will rise again. So in his resurrection, he birthed us into a new family. So these four steps and these four buildings that you find in any city in the world can help us to understand the gospel of Jesus from a justice hall to a temple to a marketplace to a home. And now he's brought his disciples home. He's made them new, and he's given them new life. You know what's so amazing about what Christ did for his disciples? Is that it mirrors the very opposite situation of what happened with the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. When Joseph had ambition, what did the, 11, what did the other 11 eventually do? They beat him, they threw him in a pit, and they sold him. And they would have killed him had it not been for one of the brothers who stopped them. So man left to himself will destroy himself and each other with selfish ambition. But these 12 disciples, having Jesus not only as their example, but actually accomplishing for them redemption of their ambition, ended up, not a one of them killed the other, and since Brother Rauf we're, we're comparing Islam and Christianity today, the beginning of Islam and the difference that you have between Shia and Sunni are all about the fights of ambition that happen between who will be the successor to the Prophet Muhammad. But where were those fights among the 12? Where was the murder that we don't remember every year among the disciples? Because Christ redeemed their ambition. And it was James, the one who was asking to be at his left or right hand, who was the first martyr of the church, who gave himself just like his savior, Jesus did. So Jesus, for every Christian, promises the power to redeem your ambition.
Now, it's easy to think that you become a Christian and maybe we shouldn't have ambition, but Jesus doesn't just uh, delete ambition, he redeems it. He buys it back and he purifies it and he makes it what it ought to be. So the person who before would have sinned with great zeal and who would have sought for himself great treasure and great position should now in Christ seek to serve and seek great things for the kingdom of God and seek great things for Christ. Is it possible that as a church we don't have too much that we don't have too little ambition, or we don't have too much ambition, but we have too little holy ambition. Could it be that you as a person don't have too much ambition, but you actually have just the kind of ambition that God gave you, and he wants to redeem it. He wants to make it according to the image of his Father. I was having this discussion with Joe and Matt at our retreat that God has taken me on a journey of understanding my own ambition. Now, what does he want to do with me? And I think this passage gives it to us. He wants to redeem every part of your personality and make it for his glory and not your own. And in doing that, he is going to heal all of the fighting and interpersonal uh, conflict. He is going to heal all of the anger and frustration that you aren't getting what you deserve, all of the envy that robs you of your joy in life, and all of your dissatisfaction for what you have not accomplished or don't have, the gospel of Jesus redeems ambition. And that's wonderful news for ambitious people. The third thing is now redirect your ambition. Look at what he says to the disciples in verse 30 and 43 and 44. He says, he who would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he gives himself as an example, the son of man who did not come to be served but came to serve. So I want to give you three ways you can redirect your ambition today. And they are these. First of all, keep your eyes on Christ. Secondly, submit to the sovereignty of God. And thirdly, is seek to serve. So first, keep your eye on Christ. We read the story briefly of the blind Bartimaeus who could not see. And he came to Jesus, and all he wanted was to see. He was not asking like James and John, make me your left-hand man and make me your right-hand man. He said, Jesus, I just want to see. Look at what Jesus says in verse 51. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. If you remember the man on the cross dying next to Jesus, what did he say? Just remember me when you get into paradise. That is to say that a Christian should never get over the joy of the simple fact that he was blind and now he sees. He should never get over the fact that Christ has already blessed him way beyond what he deserves. This is the key to Christian happiness, to be filled with the wonder that you are his and he is yours to be filled with the wonder of all that he has already blessed you with. 
True Christianity never grows past that joy and that point. Where do we see strife and fighting in our marriages and in our church and in our relationships? When we've lost sight of that fact, and now we're thinking, That's, that means very little to me. Now I want to be first. Now I want to be better and have power over that other person. I, I have begun this habit in, in my own marriage when my wife asks me to do anything for her, which happens quite often. If you're married, guys, you know what I'm saying. Our wives are great delegators. When she asks me to do anything for her at home, I've got into this habit of saying, that is a small thing for, me to, for you to ask of me. What a wonderful woman you are that God has given you to me. That is just, and, and all you're going to ask of me is that? Immediately, yes, wonderful. Why? Because I'm reminding myself verbally that I am blessed beyond measure that God's given me this woman to be my wife, right? Now, it's hard for me to want to have power over her and want to and be angry with her when I'm in that mentality. I'm not always in that mentality, but I've tried to make that a habit in my life. As a Christian, your first thought should be each morning, Lord, I can see. I am saved. I am yours, and you have promised me all of your riches and glory. Jesus said, even the Son of Man. Just keep your eyes on, what, on Jesus. Secondly, is submit to the sovereign goodwill of your good Father. In verse 40, Jesus says that this is not mine to give, whether it's to sit on your left or my, my right hand. What was he saying? He's saying that I, even I, who will deserve to sit on the throne, who will, having accomplished obedience to the Father through suffering and my resurrection, even I do not assume to put anyone in position, but I submit myself to the Father. And in our conversation with the fellows about that this week, the question was, maybe somebody reading this would say, that proves Jesus isn't God. So he didn't know that and he didn't have that power. And I explained it in this way. This is proving that there is a trinity. It's not proving there is no, that, God, that Jesus is not God, but it's showing that there are different roles in the trinity. That the, that the Father is the one who wills it and the Son is the one who accomplishes it. And it's sort of like we have a mind and we have a body. And my mind tells my hand what to do. And if my hand is obeying my mind, my, my hand does not come up with its own plan. As soon as my hand comes up with its own plan, independent of my mind, then I've become a crazy person who's completely out of control. So the Jesus, the Son, is saying, this is something in this area, it is the will of the Father, and I'm completely submitted to it. So what role and position and place and giftings has God given you? That is his good and perfect will for you. It is not even the, the job of the very Son of God to say, God, I want this position and I want that position. So be submissive to the good will of your Father. The way to position yourself in the kingdom is not to gain power over another, but to, to submit to God in whatever life circumstances he's putting you. How are you responding to your suffering today? Are you submitting to the Father's will in it? that he's put you there, that this is where he has you? How do you think about the suffering you have experienced in Christ's service? 
Do you think about it as you look back at it as something that you're bitter about or angry? Or do you look at it and say, this has been God's good and perfect will for me? Lastly, what to do with your ambition, how to redirect it, is redirect it in service. He says, the most clear thing that he says is you should be a servant and a slave to all. That means to say yes when the Lord prompts you to serve. We have many areas in our, in our church where we need service all the time. There's constantly needs of opportunity to serve. In Sunday school and in welcoming people and in witnessing and in food trains and in nursery and in music and in all of the other areas, say yes when the Lord prompts you to serve. In your neighborhood, to your spouse, to your children, receive service as a wonderful opportunity for you to pour your ambition toward that service. Secondly is serve all. He says, he who would be great must be a servant of all, or a slave of all, he says. So that means that it's not enough to say, yes, I serve my four, but no more. I have me, my wife, and my two kids, and I don't serve anybody else. For a Christian, that's not enough. It's, it's never less than that. It's never less than that, that a husband or a wife and the children, that would, they would serve each other in the home. But for a Christian, it goes beyond that. It goes to the church, and it goes to the world. It goes to seeing us as a servant to those around us. And look for your unique ability. When you serve, you are here for a specific reason. Every single one of you to play a role in serving the body of Christ. And some of you are hand, and some of you are a foot, and some are a mouth, and others an eye, and another is an ear. But Paul goes on and talks about this. As you serve, look for the unique way in which God has created you to serve. And in doing that, you will find real joy. I'm convinced that the happiest people in the world are those who know how God has made them, and they're serving in the way he's made them. Not trying to be something they're not because that's the more honored part of service. But they're just saying, Lord, who has, have you made me to be? Those people, by the way, are very open to others in the body of Christ telling them, I see this gifting in you or I don't see this gifting in you because they're not concerned about what you think about them. They're not concerned about being on the left hand or right hand. They just want to serve and they want to serve the best, and they know that their good father created them in a way that is perfect and beautiful, and they just want to discover that through service. So some of you um, are serving so much that sometimes you burn yourself out with service. Service that is done in the power of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, he will never burn you out. That's not to say that we, many of us haven't been through it. I've been through it, but not because I was following my good father and he led me through that or to that. When we serve in the power of the Spirit, according to the leading of the Spirit, he leads us like a sheep leads his, leads his like a shepherd leads his sheep to water and to green pastures. So serve. If you're not serving anywhere, let me just encourage you to talk to um, one of the women who are doing so much to organize service, or, or me, or one of the elders, and say, I want to serve somewhere. I don't know how, I don't know what I can do, but I want to serve. I got an email, a text this week says, I want to serve somewhere in the church. And I told uh, the person, that's wonderful, that's a great question. 
So, in conclusion, for our church, for our culture, what kind of contrast would holy ambition be from the twisted ambition that our culture sees? This is what will make the church reflect the beauty of Christ. Secondly, we should not be afraid of great goals and dreams for our city and for the world. The cross, in fact, should inspire great ambition. I get a little bit afraid when Rauf says, now is the time, one year from now, it'll be too late for so many families who are right now in need. And I think, I get a little bit of, I get afraid of it. But I have to know that God has made us as a church to say, here's the need, we're going to run toward it. This is the service that he's talking about. And individually, your ambition is in part still twisted, and so is mine. This is part of God's sanctifying work as you keep your eyes on Jesus, submit to the Father, and serve that he is straightening out that warped ambition that seeks self, and he's teaching us together to seek Christ. Praise him. Submit to him today. He is a good father, and he will lead you toward great happiness and service to him. Jesus, we thank you that you that you gave us not only the example, but the power to serve and to not seek self and to not seek power and riches, but to seek you and your kingdom first. And Lord, I stand to you in need today of sanctification of my twisted ambition. I am not yet as happy in Christ as I want to be, as I often think about what I don't have and where I'm not and these kind of things. And Lord, I pray that you would start it in me to straighten out this twisted ambition in my heart and that you would do that with each of your people today. In Jesus' name.